I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. Our special guest this week is a woman who at one time played a very big part in Irish society, particularly in teaching young people about sex and sexuality. To some, she may have seemed typical of a prudish and very naive view of these matters, but to others, her talks to schools, her pamphlets, books, and particularly her weekly column in the Sunday Press were lifelines for adolescents who felt afraid or ashamed to raise questions about what were then known as the facts of life with parents or teachers. Angela McNamara, you're very welcome to the programme. Hello, thank you very much. Well, let's take it right back to the very beginning. You were born, am I allowed to say, in 1931? Oh yeah, I'm 81 this year. Born in Dublin? Yes. And what was your childhood like? It was fine. You know, it it was very good, really. And we were a middle class family and we seemed to have everything we wanted in a way. Not to the extent that children have nowadays, but yeah, we did and we weren't spoiled. Now, you make the point, uh, talking about those school years and those teenage years, teenagers weren't really a category in those days and there was no concept of the teenage angst or anything like that. Not at all. I mean, if you asked me, I couldn't remember really, except that I had good fun and... um, The parents kept an eye on what was happening, but I enjoyed it with my girlfriends. And then my first date was when I was just about 16. And it was an afternoon date. And uh, I went out with this guy and that was a great start. And um, then we started, as you might say, subsequently going together, you know. But that didn't stop me meeting other people as well, other guys. And... My grandchildren today would sort of say, do you mean that you'd be going with that guy and going with other guys as well? I said, oh, yeah. I mean, how, how, how would you select if there was only one to select from? Of course, the other side of that is that we weren't going, as we would have said then, as far in what you might call the lovemaking, which was at that time uh, just hugging and, and kissing. And we had a lot of happy social life and nobody expected anybody else to go any further than that kind of thing. You married quite young, actually. Yeah, I got engaged on my 21st birthday. We had a party, of course, and then kind of it was announced and there was a whole lot of, what you can imagine, the fun and games. And uh, that was the... I got married then, uh, I think it was... Later, I was I was twenty two. Do you think if you had it all to do again, would you do it differently? If say you had been making love with him, sleeping with him, living with him before you got married, would you have got married as young? Was there pressure on you to get married? There was absolutely no pressure on me to get married, not, none at all. In fact, uh, my father he was sort of he was very wise as a doctor. I think he had seen a lot of life, and we each were spoken to carefully <laughs> and you know, advised as to how to prepare. And it wasn't only a matter of sex, it was a matter of developing a real uh, loving relationship with the person. There wasn't any uh, sexual intercourse, of course, uh, because that would have been sinful. But there was all the other little bits and pieces that go along the way with that. There was a, a book at the time, a magazine called Junior Digest, which I think was quite short-lived, but I did reviews of children's books and stuff, little bits of stuff like that. So I always did that. And then The Messenger of the Sacred Heart, which we all know is the little red book that pretty well every family got at the time. I began to, I was invited to write in that, and I wrote in that in, I think it was 1959, 60, 61 maybe. My fourth 
child was born in 1960, I had a real realisation of this skill of mothering. And there's a real skill in it. You don't just sort of go in there. And I worked at developing that. And I wrote little notes to myself. During that time, Peter and I and a group of about eight friends, that's four couples, we were all at the same stage and we talked about our children and what we should do and uh, any difficulties and then we'd have a cup of tea and chat and all that. And that was great. So you're writing for The Messenger and then you started giving the talks in schools. How did that come about? Um, A teacher in a convent in Belfast read one of the articles and um, got in touch with me and asked me would I come up and speak to the sixth year girls and they would have been 17, 18 sort of age about motherhood and not sexual facts like physical facts but about motherhood and babies um, I felt there was a great skill in mothering and I still do and to share my ideas with them really not to speak at them but to share with them and I went up to Belfast and I'll tell you exactly when that was it was when the day I was reading the paper in the train and it was the day that the news about the thalidomide do you remember that? Mm-hmm. It first broke and the number of children who were being born with uh, deformities and so on so that's how I remember that day. I remember thinking, oh, wow, you know, that could have happened me. Anyway, I, I went on to um, Belfast and I wrote out every word of what I was going to say to the girls because I was afraid that I wouldn't say it right in. So I wrote out every word and then I went in and I just, just like I wasn't, I didn't have any degrees of any kind, but I was just sharing as being that far ahead of themselves and not too far ahead of themselves, really. Then the principal asked me, would I speak to the trainee teachers in order to encourage them to talk to the girls? So it was just, it seems so mad now when I think of it. I just went in and talked to them. And that's where it started because conference down here got interested. And so, you know, it went on from there and then it began to spread. It wasn't on the basis of, like if you were talking about somebody like Maureen Gaffney now, she has behind her a wall of credits uh, in university sense. I didn't have that, so it would be like comparing a lemon with a grape or something, you know. And then what we principally remember you for are your letters in the Sunday press, Dear Angela. Yeah. Um, we saw, we'll come back to it shortly, but uh, the Ryark Squad before Christmas uh, used a part of a documentary that was made about you in 1975 and we see you in your home with these stacks of letters. Now very often people are accused of, of faking the letters or making them up, but clearly there was a need and you got all these letters. Absolutely. I, I didn't make one letter up. The only way... Never? I, n- I never made a single letter, but I will tell you this, that if I got um, half a dozen letters asking about the same thing and then I would put it all together in under one, you know. So in that sense, yes. Let's hear an example of a couple of those letters now and then we'll come back and talk more about them. OK. I've been going with a boy who's been encouraging our use of contraceptive devices so that we could have sexual intercourse on nearly every date. To my horror, I now find I've become pregnant. I told him and he now says he's engaged to another girl and would not marry me anyway now that I'm pregnant. It's well known that these contraceptive devices are not anything like 100% safe. Many girls have become pregnant in spite of such devices having been used. Also, stories like yours indicate how little love there is in such lustful relationships. Now, you must contact the Secretary, Catholic Protection and Rescue Society, 
30 South Ann Street, Dublin 2. There you will be advised as to the best thing to do and all arrangements for pregnancy, confinement, adoption, etc. will be made for you. The services in this country are excellent. Don't go to England. Like all fellows who go with a girl after a dance, we try to go as far as we can with a girl. If a girl is soft enough to give in, she needn't blame the boy for wanting all he can get. After all, isn't that all most of us go with the girls after dances for? Unfortunately, as proved by my mail, this attitude is not uncommon. Boys pour into public dance halls when the pubs close for the sole purpose of picking up girls. If the girls were not as easily available as they are, this scandal would not be continuing as it is. Just a sample there of the letters you got. Now, you say in in your book, uh, yours sincerely, that you were known for taking a moral line and also you were an advocate of prayer as a wonderful support in troubled times. Was that a deliberate? Um, Well, to begin there, the voice of the person answering those letters is not the voice that I would have used answering them. You know, it sounds strict and clipped and I know it's not like me. But anyway, whatever about that, it is what I wrote and it is what I meant. And I was and am a Catholic. And at that time, so were most of the people who wrote to me. And there was no thought at that time that uh, the things that have happened since were going to happen. Contraception had just come back. That was the 1960s. or Yeah, probably sometime during the 1960s. And um, contraception, contraception was very much talked about at the time. And um, there was a fear that if the young people got contraceptives that love would go out and they would just have sex with anybody and um, and it was true that contraception didn't always work for them because I mean I had personally I remember had a girl with me in school who was pregnant and uh, she told me they had used contraception and uh, but the condom had stayed inside you know there were things like that that weren't said but I was um, privy to a lot of stories like that and I didn't just so always say hey go to this address and get somebody to talk to you. I very often talked to them myself but in order to carry the whole thing through you couldn't do that. I couldn't do that with every girl so I used whatever agencies were available. Now talk about Humana Vitae in 1968 in terms of contraception. Yeah it came as a shock. Um, as I told you I had my four daughters by 1960. And I wasn't interested in having another four. Um, But we thought that contraception would be allowed to married people. But, you know, when I think of that now, how could you confine it? And then we found that they couldn't and that wasn't going to be on. And I found that very difficult. Um, I don't mean I, I mean Peter and I. Mm. And it meant changing our way of behaving towards each other and having a more um, structured love life, if you like. There were ideas, of course, and they they were right, that at certain times in the month a woman was more fertile than other times. And what went on then was uh, trials to discover how she could know she was fertile. And, uh, you know, we had a go at all those kind of things, which were very difficult. And then at the times that we thought I would be fertile, we didn't have intercourse. And then at the other times we did. I mean, your feelings didn't work like that. Either you took the risk or you just had to do without it. It was like sleeping on the extreme sides of the bed or something like that so that we'd avoid each other. Now, that's not natural. And neither is it natural when they came into having the temperature way of assessing fertility 
that is natural either because you can imagine I woke in the morning and in order to find if I was in my fertile time, I'd have to take my uh, temperature, you understand, anally or vaginally rather, sorry, vaginally. And um, like at the same time as I woke and was taking my temperature, the children were out on the landing saying, those are not my socks, those are your socks. I have, mum, it really was the most unnatural thing in the world. Uh, so uh, I sort of half did it and the other half uh, got out of bed and fixed the row and so I got the breakfast and, you know, the rest of that. So it really wasn't, even though I accept that scientifically it's correct to say that there are fertile and infertile times, of course I accept that, but discovering those was the problem and we wrestled with that and it wasn't easy. So what, what else can I say? But we stuck with it. So how did you feel about in the 1970s then and the, and the, the women, the Nell McCafferty's and all those women bringing the condoms in and the train and all that? Oh, well, I think I mean, I think I thought that this sort of thing is inevitable and that this is what we were going to have to face up to. I didn't, of course, agree with it and I wouldn't have gone on the train and done it, nor would I have been asked. And uh, so, you know, I felt this is what we're going to have to struggle against because the inevitably... All kinds of people were going to be able to get them and there would be uh, sex and the sexual act of intercourse were being separated from love. And of course, I was very totally against that. I, I always intended when I was teaching the children that the loving relationship between the husband and wife would eventually lead to intercourse, but not just like the letter you read there from the boy. And I still think that I, I think. You know, there should be a connection, in a loving connection between the two people, even though I know that's not what's going on. I mean, I'm, I'm not blind. <laughs> now, going back to that, uh, the Ryark squad there before Christmas and Maureen Gaffney, and you mentioned her earlier, she said you were probably the first semi-radical voice in a devout laity. When you think of the whole of Ireland pretty well being Catholic, I know it wasn't all, but the whole of Ireland being Catholic and being obedient Catholics, they just obeyed whatever the church said, without any kind of argument coming up, you know. And um, I think that was partly historical because I think when in history, in times before, 100 years before that, the Irish were so kept down, they had to obey the landlords and they were really kept down as a people and they retained their faith in a very solid sort of way. And I don't think they fully understood their faith, but they were just obedient to it. And I do think they had a different kind of a faith, which is, you know, they really loved God and they had, uh, in time of sickness and trouble and everything like that, they turned to God and that was the way it was. They didn't know half of what the church was talking about. They didn't hear it explained, but they went along with it. Now, some of the some of the church members didn't like what you were doing. You tell a story in your book about going up to Archbishop's house for the first time, but you never met the Archbishop. It was a nun that you met. Yeah. Yeah. You see, what happened to me was I was then getting so many letters that I, I honestly couldn't cope. A lot of them were private letters enclosing stamped addressed envelopes and they were certainly subjects that I couldn't publish, either because the editor would have thought this is a no-no, no-go area. So I took on writing the private letters as well. If you had any heart at all, you'd hear, you couldn't just leave them. So anyway... I got exhausted and I decided there's something needs to be done on a, 
uh, wider basis than just this silly one person doing all this much. So that's why I decided I'd go up to the Archbishop, who was John Charles McQuaid. And off I went. And uh, I was, as I still am, asthmatic, but I'm much better now. But I was quite easily made asthmatic then. And I went off. I had no car, off by bus and up the long avenue on a cold day. And I got very wheezy and I got very anxious about what I was doing. And I went in and I was brought into a parlour with pictures of popes all around and sort of the smell of beeswax. I I can still get the feeling of it. And really, it was a bit nerve-wracking. So then this nun came in, and I thought she was coming in to bring me into the archbishop. And she said that she didn't like the work I was doing and that uh, she felt should, I should give it up. And I said, no way. That I knew that it was making a lot of people happy, and I didn't think that it was making people unhappy and uh, until I got some kind of a sign that it wasn't the right thing to do, I was going to keep it on. So she was. She said, come along. And we went out through the hall to where I thought his study was and she opened the hall door and let me out. Apart from being gobsmacked, I was furious and I was wheezy. <laughs> so it was a horrible experience and Donna went and got the bus home again. But I wasn't going to leave it at that. I wrote to him and told him what I thought. And either, like, he couldn't excommunicate me. He had to do something about it. So I got another date, a date with an archbishop. And uh, back I went, and she wasn't there that time. So I got into him. It was kind of scary because he was at the end of this big room and I had to go up the middle and he had the huge mahogany desk, which was about the size of my box room at home. You know, the whole desk was about the size of my box room. And he put out his ring so that I'd kiss his ring. And the whole thing was a bit difficult. So anyway, uh, he asked me whatever, what was I here about and so on. So I was trying to tell him. And I was saying, look, if, if the Catholic Church is a church of Christ, then we should be helping these people. Like it should be a huge move Instead of listening to canon law and all that sort of stuff, we should be making a huge move out to the people. And you know what happened to me? I began to cry. It was horrible. It was really horrible. And he changed. He didn't know what to do with this woman. It was, wasn't moving, sitting there and kind of pushing back tears, you know, the way you would. And he said, I mean, I'd said more than I, than I said to you just now. I forget all that I said. And then the tears came and he got up and got a book for me and he gave it, which I still have. And he signed it and he said, I'll look into all that for you. And then he ushered me out. And I don't know what he did after that, but some people say that he got the, what was called then the Catholic Marriage Advisory Council, that say the following year or something, that was started. And some people say that was sort of, as a result, I don't know. Some good did say. come out of it. You said earlier that with your editor in the Sunday Press, there were some topics that were a no-go area. Yeah. And I'm thinking that all this time, the untold story was, of course, the story of abuse. Did you ever get letters about abuse? Of course I did. Abuse is as old as humankind. And it was happening then too. But, you know, we talk about the church keeping um, the abuse situation 
hidden from the people. But every family that had abuse in it kept it hidden from the family. The church was just like a big family. And the abuse was hidden all over this country and still is, I can assure you. And it would either be children at school. In the schools, the children came in to talk to me privately at one particular session in the day. They'd tell me things like this. My dad, my brother, my neighbour, my uncle, whatever, is doing... My priest? No, I never got one about a priest, isn't it? Until, I'll tell you that in a minute. But uh, only one later on. But um, anyway, it was usually about neighbours and family people. My brother, my babysitter. And I thought, hey, people out there don't realise when they bring in 18-year-old babysitters. You know, you have to be very sure what you're doing. So uh, anyway, uh, I was faced with that. And then at that stage, my position was um, that I had to tell the principal of the school because she had to get in touch, you know, with the parents or the parent and the authorities and perhaps the police. And the child never wanted me to tell. There were tears and tears about it. And I explained why I had to. And um, yeah, that happened. And... All I could think of doing at the time was to talk to your doctor or to your priest, as it happened. Now, I didn't ever hear, I know priests were involved at the time, but nobody ever told me that. Maybe that was a step too far for people to tell me. Until one day a priest phoned me at home and told me that he had made a schoolgirl pregnant. And would I talk to her? And... um, yeah, I did talk to her, you know, I, I I had her up to my house and I don't know whether I did her any good or not. But anyway, that that's what happened. And um, I advised her about uh, talking to somebody in authority about it. I see you quoted as saying you've broken into poetry. How important is that to you? Oh, well, <laughs> I also write um, short stories and... And I love doing that because I get ideas and I love to get them down on paper. I was doing the short stories for a while and I wrote a novel. And um, then I i can't remember exactly how I got into poetry, but I did. And I started writing all sorts of little doggerels. And like in none of the things that I write, am I remarkable? But what is remarkable is the pleasure they give me. I love writing and I can sit down and write. And maybe nobody will ever see it, but I love doing it, so I do it. Well, here's yeah. one that we're going to hear. It's called Getting On With It. Tell us about that. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> about an old person. It's just an old woman and what she's feeling about her her, her present life. Now, it's not me, because I don't really feel that way, but uh, a bit I do. And uh, that's what, I just got that idea and you sort of sit down and write it down. Let's hear it. I'm feeling old. I'm growing small. Is there anyone out there who cares at all? I have no mobile, cannot tweet. In reality, oldies aren't actually sweet. To be out of the mainstream might seem like tough luck, but these days my main dream is not passing the buck. There's no one to take it, just do my own thing. If I really feel like it, have an old person's fling. In my head I am busy writing poems that rhyme. Online makes me dizzy, Take my tablets in time. Hold my grey head up high, say I don't give a damn. Most of the time I pretend to be calm. Sometimes, just sometimes, I sigh. Angela McNamara, thank you so much for being our guest tonight. 
it's, it's been very good for me, kind of recalling all these incidents. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Angela's autobiography is called Yours Sincerely, her book of advice, Ready, Steady, Grow, and she's also written Reflections for the Golden Years. They're all available through Veritas. As always, we welcome your comments. Our email address is godslot at rte.ie. The phone number is 01-208-2039 and our postal address, the Godslot, RTE Radio 1, Dublin 4. We won't have a programme next week as we'll be broadcasting part four of Blighted Nation, a special series about the Irish famine. But we'll be back on Friday the 11th of January with a very special look at the spiritual state of the nation with representatives of the Abrahamic faiths. Good evening, Avlian Fuivosha.